Tassa Bhagavato Rahato Sama Sambodasa Namotasa Bhagavato Rahato Sama Sambodasa Namotasa Bhagavato Rahato Sama Sambodasa Udang Damang Sangang Namasami So, one of the areas we cultivate in in monasteries and in training is a sense of manner. It's kind of behaviour that's not just about uh, good and bad, but a sense of style, sense of behaviour. Things that help to bring perhaps a quality of calm or spaciousness into something external, not just an internal quality, but we try to create a kind of an an environment that uh, has that flavour, has that tone to it. There's different tones, you know, there's benevolence, warmth, spaciousness, clarity, simplicity, friendliness, these kinds of tones and above all a kind of the whole sense of it leading to the mind easing out of stress, out of tension and so the kind of uh, ways in which the mind uh, is rough or harsh or blind, you know, blinded by its impulses the the system, the kind of atmosphere can help to ease one out of. So you just a lot of the learning is done just by more or less just being in a situation that uh, encourages that. It's like uh, you know if you have uh, fire, but the wood is wet, then the fire doesn't catch. Similarly, you know, for our own minds that are kind of rough or harsh or impulsive or tense or, you know, have ill will in it and you're in an environment that doesn't actually feed that, then it tends to put it out by itself. The fire doesn't catch and eventually the fire just dies out. And that's pretty much one of the, the staple um, understandings of of how we practice here, you know. So it's a kind of, you might say it's indirect and one isn't necessarily, you know, getting rid of things or stopping things or even even necessarily analysing or understanding things. You're just creating a situation where some of the the harshness, the fires can just die out by themselves. You know. It's to create an ecosystem, if you like, whereby the goodness of our practice is fed into the atmosphere, into the environment, into the soil, and skillful things grow and unskillful things tend to die out through that. And it means that the result of that is that something is actually open to our environment, soft and yield, find balance in where we are physically, walk around in it, um, sit back in it, just drink it in, 
rather than a practice that's, that's always doing all the time, a practice which we can receive feedback from, you know, the results of, of what other people are doing. You receive feedback from it, you can drink it in and just sit in it and let yourself unwind in it. Come out of the uh, narrowness and the obsessiveness that the self-structures of our mind tend to create in our own stories, in our own script, in our own strategies, in our own plans and mistrusts and apprehensions and in something that doesn't feed that. But it does feed a sense of trust, of respect, of mindfulness, of calm, patience. This is an important, one of the great um, features of, of uh, what monasteries are about, where you start to look at things like even these ritual forms as what, what's the point of this? What does all this stuff mean? You know, why do we do all this funny old cranky stuff? Why do all this that and the other? Now you've actually got to step back from that way of looking at it, of looking at it too closely at the detail, just kind of sit in the tone of it. It's kind of a gentle light. Voice is soft, resonant, intoning. Just pick up the tone. Oh, that's what it means. It means the manner. The manner is the meaning. I mean, there are other. There is meaning in the words, in their own way. But after you've got the meaning once, you know, <laughs> it's uh, it's very simple devotional reflections. And uh, after that, it's really the, the manner. It's like striking that same tonal reference time and time again to so get a sense of, oh, you know, just about something resonant, simple, calm. It doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't, it's not uh, driven. And you can sit in it, just pick it up, you know, listen to it. Don't have to do it even, just enjoy it. So it definitely this, this kind of um, form like this has its own teaching how to learn how to learn by listening and waiting listening to subtle things and that makes your own behavior a lot more subtle conscious, focused not in an intense way but in a sensitive way and you start to notice the the speech patterns that are just rough, blurred, careless, reactive, nervy, slurred. You just don't hurry, you know. If you can say something, when's the right time, right place, you know, to make a skill out of bringing that across. It doesn't have to be a heavy-handed, you know, exercise in logistics, just an exercise in in uh, respecting the person who's listening. So can you place this in a way that makes it agreeable, makes it clearly heard? And there's a lot of that um, to be learnt. Because most of us, when we talk, just think, and I know what I'm saying, so you know, throw it out. And <laughs> you don't necessarily make it something that's, you know, yeah.
I think one of the advantages we have here, if you if you really resonate with it, is that many people here you know, their, their native their mother tongue isn't English, so it does encourage us to perhaps speak a bit more consciously and clearly uh, to make it you know, slowly to make other people understand what's being said. And this is really good training because when you do that then your whole sense of mindfulness of speech is a lot stronger and you realise a lot of things actually no, you don't need to say that <laughs> a lot of stuff is just, just nervous energy running through the brain so one way of thinking you know, when you tell us how to speak to somebody who's maybe hard of hearing and you know, isn't English that's a good way to learn how to you know, so clear, you know, straight to the point. What's what's uh, and that the manner is uh, is uh, agreeable. Good to think like this, not because we're trying to, you know, be perfect, but as a as a form, but to place attention on skillfulness. Everything about. Uh, our practice is not just in terms of simple morally good, morally bad, but skillful. That's the under, that's the theme that runs through all of Buddhist practice. It's beyond you know the good and bad are aspects of skillful, but skillful is much more than just good and bad. It means appropriate, suitable, helpful. You know that gives us the greatest advantage. You know. Skillfulness in action, skillfulness in speech, skillfulness, of course. And as the mind becomes more skillful, then we naturally that skillfulness comes back into our own meditation, doesn't it? How you attend to your own thought process, how you attend to your own emotional movements, how you attend to your own to these um, attitudes that we have running for us, our biases, our our apprehensions, our anxieties, how do you attend to them skillfully? You attend to them skillfully because you attend to everything skillfully. That's that's the theme. It's a craft, if you like. And then particularly with uh, the Ajahn Chah's monasteries, one of the attractive things, or I found attractive about them anyway, was that there was a good amount of emphasis on you know, skillful work, right? making your own robes, making bowl stands, firing bowls, knowing how to do things, how to chant, how to, even the particular skills of how to attend to senior monks, how to receive food, how to time, uh, right time, right place, certain quality of manner, manners, and I think we can take this the wrong way as it's somehow being very tight and uptight and fussy but not really it's just uh, the kind of skills you have in planing wood or in handling cloth or in using a tool it's not about being tight it's about being what's this tool what's this material capable of how do you handle it well to 
work so that as you're working, you're working with a sense of joy, the work is a sense of ease, with a sense of focus, and you're res- respecting the materials that you're using. Now, if you have that kind of sensitivity and awareness, then on a, something physical and external, then that natural sensitivity, you want to turn it towards the way we walk, the way we sit, the way we eat, and uh, the way we meditate, so that you're running one particular basic program in the mind, rather than having meditation as one thing, you know, and then working is another thing, and then being with people is another thing, you know. So you got so you have different kind of sets of attitudes that we we have towards different areas of our life. You want to have one attitude to it. Is it skillful? And skillful doesn't mean um, intensely serious or intensely anything. It means skillful. <laughs> you know, how does this work well? How is this conducive? When is it silence conducive? When is speech conducive? When is humor conducive? When is firmness conducive? When is it important to really you know, get to the point when it's important to just step back. And uh, that's, that's ex- it's that sense of uh, overriding skillfulness that where we're not, there's no other real abiding place. It's not about being quiet, it's not about being talkative, it's not about being, um, you know, deeply internal, deeply external. It's not in a particular position, it's overriding skillfulness based upon which begins the wisdom starts to occur through just that sensitivity to cause and effect, you know, which is the overriding understanding what skillful is about. It's more than just morally good gives morally bad, but actually particular ways of calming, steadying, focusing, give results that are more enjoyable, more agreeable, deepening, um, deepening in trust, deepening in, in steadying effects, mm. so that we're not spun out. Of course, of course, any craft we can get obsessive about. You can get obsessive about work, you can get obsessive about studying, you can get obsessive about points of veneer, you can get obsessive about, about meditation. Um, but it's not about being obsessive, it's about knowing the skills of that allow the mind to to develop or sense into this whole environment of Dhamma where what is letting you know there's a letting go starts to happen. Letting go of one's drive, one's holding on, one's attachment to views. And that, so there is a result to skill skillful karma. It leads to the end of it. It leads to the place where somethingness is not making anything out of anything. Atamayata, I call it, not making anything out of anything. So then the mind is really restful, but not, not withdrawn, not pushed forward.
So you can take very obvious things like how much to eat. Knowing how much you need to eat, how much you need to sleep. How to eat so that you're really with the process of eating. You know, so that the mind is directly on what it's doing. And you're with the kind of energy of that, you know, spinning out on it. So this kind of practice always uses quite specific events, you know, such as breathing, eating, touching, speaking, you know, it bases upon some kind of object that we we use like that. And you of course, the point is, it's not the object, it's the skillfulness of the way we're handling that particular experience or with that particular experience. Because our lives have these, however much we um, tune into spaciousness and emptiness and so forth, still there are these very specific, tangible events that occur or seem to occur. <laughs> I don't know how absolute you want to get, but most of us really experience seeing things and touching things, or whatever that's worth. And so we use that. Uh, But it's bringing, if you like, spaciousness, emptiness. The benefit of that is it has no particular drive or end point, the quality of mindfulness and awareness. Is he bringing that onto what's happening in the realm of touch, sound, sight, thought, taste, movement? So you mix putting the two together. Because it's often in the realm of uh, action and activity of karma that there's old habits that do have effects. You know, the habits of haste, rush, re- hastiness, or pushiness, or fluttering, doubtfulness, procrastination, uncertainty, um, you know, obsessiveness, all these karmic habits that have effects, and they have effects on ourselves, they have effects on others. So, when you really look at skillfulness as being our basic communication beyond sight beyond what we say and do we communicate ideally we communicate skillfulness you pick up skillfulness you appreciate skillfulness in others and you tune into that that's that's the language (laughs) and you don't have to understand the words you don't even understand the why the manner the manner is the meaning you know, the manner is basically attention. Attention. You know, open up to this. Folk, you know, be with this. Steady, carry it through. That's the that's the message. Um, carry it through because it's it's there, not because we want to necessarily be the best at it or make something out of it, but because it's happening. We carry it through. 
There's a real emptying of one's self-preoccupations into the flow of events. It's emptying of oneself rather than building oneself up out of the events to be the best or the worst or any other judgment we can make of our actions. It's not that, it's about emptying yourself into what we what one does and says. So it's lived completely and there's nothing left at the end of it. There's no claims, there's no regrets, there's no winning and there's no losing. We've emptied that. Uh, and that was skillful. So it's a kind of a, a very thorough and long-term process. I mean long-term, not in a sense of um, it's going to take forever, but that we're not looking for the moment, the great breakthrough, the technique that's going to blast me out of here. You know, it, it's a very, the timeline disappears. It's, uh, you know, you give up that timeline. You know, it's just you whiz things skillfully and you let things change. Um, and there isn't this is necessity to claim anything. You know, <laughs> or have that, that whole attitude in mind. Because that's, is that skillful? You know, when you're using that attitude, is that, does that really help? You think, oh, are you this? Are you, have you attained anything? No. Doubt. Uh, <coughs> conceit. <laughs> uh, uncertain, you know, these sort of things come up. I don't know. What, you know. So, well, that means you haven't attained anything. Doubt. <laughs> conceit. <laughs> you can conceive yourself, oneself as being attained or unattained. <laughs> Still the same thing. And conceit is one of the main fetters. In other words, conceiving oneself. So you start to think along those lines. As you practice, have you developed anything out of your practice? You think, if you say yes or no, either those are wrong. <laughs> really. Because it's like uh, there's some, you know, it's the, the you know, what's the mind doing at that, in that, that moment? What's the mind doing? That's what you want to know about. Is this, is this a proper skillful behavior? Doesn't it result in some sense of, um, you know, attachment? Often people want to know what you've gained out of it. But really, the more useful, when I ask for a useful question, is what have you lost out of this? Have you lost a little bit more of self-importance? Have you lost a little bit more of restlessness? Have you lost a bit of doubt today? <laughs> that's, more, that's a more useful thing to say, not what you've attained, but what you've actually lost. Oh. So that the very sense of, you know, what one will be or what one is, is doesn't really, isn't a reference point that your mind goes to. It's what's skillful now, what's skillful now. 
their lives are often presenting this as opportunity. Today I had a particular thing I wanted to do all day, really. It was just uh, just had a tiny little bit of sewing something. Five-minute job. Five-minute job. Did you better do that? Five-minute job. You know, I know when I sort of get those five-minute job ideas in the mind, it's in for stress is about to happen. <laughs> because, uh, you know, so we have the the morning meeting. No, well, no time after that because we have to clean the Dhamma hall. Clean the Dhamma hall. No time after that because there's time to go out for the meal. I was invited out for a meal. I said, oh, well, this should be out for a meal. Well, eat the meal. That should be it. Over with. Get back. Well, after the meal, people want to talk a bit. Okay. Talk a bit. This, that, you know. Then, right. So that was, so, okay, get back about two and then something fixing on on my computer, so that's another while, and then, uh, oh yeah, right, better do something about the rain coming down, to, to look at something in the grounds, so by about half past four, in the afternoon, right, now to get round to doing that five minute job, walked into the house, and some people there, hadn't seen in a few years, oh, hello, John, all right, so I could sense that, that moment in the mind of like, oh, what I get, you know, and then just stop. Just, you know, that, uh, you know, what really am I trying to do here? And uh, to meet those moments when one's, you know, one's plans actually aren't going to happen. And then just sort of open up to, to right now, this is where we are, what's skillful, trying to, be a, give us fully to to the unplanned as possible, you know. and, uh, and to my finally got up to my little five minute job about you know, five o'clock. Found it. Of course, I get to sewing machines. I know I have a whole kind of history with sewing machines. With most machines, I have history. Actually, we look at each other with sort of an intense stare. This machine thinks, looks at me, and says, "I'm not going to work for you." <laughs> so there's always something. So the five-minute job actually turned into about 45 minutes of uh, doing something, finding it. I've done it wrong. Unpick it. Start again. Find out the machines run out of thread. Thread it. Start again. Find out I didn't thread it correctly. Stop. Start again. <laughs> and it turned my mind way back to one of my first big sewing project when I was a junior monk. I had to sew these robes, and uh, I'd never done it before. Never done any sewing before. Never anything like that. And they just basically said, here's a sewing machine. This is how you adjust the stitch tension. And, you know, you make a, just make a robe. You know, here's a pattern. And some of these robes are rather difficult, like this double thick one where you have to make the Sangati because each panel has to be... So the seam, the stitches don't show. You have to kind of fold, make it inside out and turn it inside out upon itself. But it's made of nine different panels which all have to be you know, stitched inside out and turned round. I can't describe it. 
and I certainly couldn't do it. And uh, and I'd start on the thing, and I'd start sewing away. And that's it, that's it. Do a whole load of sewing and find out, oh, it's wrong. I have to unpick it all. Sew it up another way. Oh, that's wrong. Unpick it all. Sew it up the third way. That's wrong. Unpick it all. Then realize I'm back to the first way again. So I'd go <laughs> going round in circles and then the needle would break, you know, and then the thread would run out and the stitch tension would go. I spent about ten days in with this machine. And eventually, you know, I started to get the point of I just go to the machine in the morning and sit there and look at it, stroke it, bow to it, talk to it. This is not about getting anything done. This is just about basic surrender. <laughs> you know, the whole movement of the mind changed from getting the five-minute job, the ten-minute job, the whatever it is job done to just <laughs> surrender. And they got quite a pleasant, you know, because uh, I wasn't actually didn't really care anymore. And I started the mind kind of dropped from it that's a, like a driven state of impatience which is a kind of big problem for me uh, into well here I am sitting in this room the sun's shining nobody's bothering me oh well just unpick a few threads and sew them up again and unpick it again and good day's work <laughs> and once I got to that point my mind then was open enough to actually begin to sense how to do it right. And it couldn't do it right from trying to get it done. It could only do it right from this place of just a kind of innocence and curiosity to, well, what happens if I do this? And, well, look at that, you know, make a mistake. Uh huh, that's how it worked. So one isn't really. You know, anxious not to make mistakes, or frightened of mistakes, or ashamed of mistakes. But you, you have the mind that's open to that, and you kind of, it, it's all right. But you're learning, and you have to get beyond the sense of um, getting it right. But you're also getting beyond the, not not caring whether you get it right or wrong, but actually interested in the process of it. So that because that quality of uh, that itself is a very skillful way of learning. You know, learning without a whole um, sense of having to be perfect and good at it, but attending, giving attention, emptying oneself into what one's doing. And uh, there's a real beauty of stillness that arises within that, even when you're doing things even when you're active, there's a real stillness because the mind is not pushing, it's actually, you might say, surfing, just coasting on the action. There's a lovely, lovely stillness of poise and balance. The Ajahn Chah called it still flowing water. <coughs> you, know, you can't say it's stopped, you can't say it's running because it's actually running or flowing with the movements of events and in that there's no 
There's no stopping to review and hold on. There's just that flow in which your mind starts to open and release not just obvious good and bad, but also release this this nervous clutch at you know results and achievements and how am I and how good am I and all that and uh, you just feel the tone of skillfulness in and enjoy it really enjoy it you know, whether it's walking you know just being with your body walking whether it's breathing in and out whether it's cooking washing up whether it's talking just to really get the sense of having the mind poised, listening, and enjoying the the, the flow of skill, mm. flow of sensitivity. It's a piece that I think, you know, in monasteries, in some ways, can be very privileged to have that opportunity. Um, partly because we're not trying to make money. We don't have to work a living out of it. So we haven't got to hunt, really don't have to get things done for that particular purpose. Which is a great blessing. You don't really get the sack. I can't think, nobody's left has got the sack. They all left because they, <laughs> they gave it the sack. <laughs> so that's one of the advantages. But certainly even in lay life, you know, look at if you can coming out of the more, um, you know, really essential to come out of the where we are in the more um, driven, functioning states into times when we're at home, and you're changing gear into a kind of curiosity and skillfulness. So you've got to try to develop a culture so you don't just go from, you know, the work ethic and then you carry that into the meditation but just how to find time where there's a quality of of manner and skillfulness in what you do that by itself almost kind of glides into meditation because you start to enjoy the sense of the mind's skill and you want to sit with that and you want to breathe with that and you want to listen into that so that you find it's taking you into meditation rather than the sudden sort of switch, you know, flip, sit on your cushion and wait for the engines to calm down. You actually, you know, are gear shifting into a more uh, nourishing mode of behavior to support a natural awakening, a natural meditation that tends to take you to these uh, this uh, more deep more deep stillness in your mind anyone